Hello once again and welcome to another episode of the Looking After Nature podcast, bringing you close to nature and wildlife in New Hampshire. My name is Andrew Davidson and I'm here once again with my co-host Carly Harrod. Hi Carly. Hi Andy. What a beautiful day we have today. It is. It's really blue sky, loads of clouds at the moment, a little wispy one, so it's quite warm. A little bit windy than we might have thought, but we'll, stay, we'll try and stay out of the wind and it'll be lovely and warm, I think. It will be. And we've come to one of my favourite places. And already we've only walked about a uh, 100 metres and already I'm very very excited because there's lots and lots and lots of butterflies. So where are we today? We're at Martin Down Natural Nature Reserve and I think we might have been here before in the podcast but it's a fantastic site and we've come here to talk about speciality here because it's so flower rich it's the the pollinators on site up here. Yeah so you're going to be meeting with Mike who's the site manager and you're going to be having a walk around looking for pollinators. Yeah and as you say we've already seen like quite a few butterflies there's a lot of plants here. And as I can see flies and insects all over the place, so I think it'll be a really good day today. I think it will too. Hi, Mike's a lovely day today to meet, isn't it? Yeah, it's all right, a little bit windy, but um, if we get some shelter, we'll be all right, I think. Yeah, Martin Down is probably worth emphasising what a fantastic place it is. I mean, it's a national nature reserve, isn't it? It is, and the triple SI. Um, it's a lovely area of Chalk Downland. Um, I think it's something like the third largest area of Chalk Downland in the country that's unimproved chalk downland so it's about 330 hectares about a thousand acres so it's a massive area and i can see all the way up to the ridge some distance at least a kilometer away up there isn't it it goes yeah. all the way out to the top of the hill doesn't it yeah so it's a huge area and it's that's what it's so valuable about it it's so flower rich and it's such a big area it incorporates various different habitats so because it's a large area We've got areas of scrub, areas of woodland, areas of fairly rough grassland, and then also areas of really, really good short turf, flower-rich grassland. Yeah, and that's the thing, it's that diversity, which is a big key to how, how many species are on here, isn't it? Yeah, so I mean, where we are now is, we're not far from the car park, we're at the bottom of the hill. Uh, it's a, a strip of grassland next to the track. It's only cut sort of once every three years or so it's yeah. not grazed so it's fairly rank but even here there's still interest for pollinators so there's hogweed which most people don't like very much um, but actually dipterists people who are interested in flies love it in fact there's a couple of flies sat on here now on top of the hogweed and the thing that's the thing I and mean, people know probably know they might have heard the term umbellifer but if you know cow parsley hogweed all the branches of the flowers come up and it's a flat head with loads of flowers on top isn't it that's right it's like a platform for them with a load of sort of sweet stuff as well the one thing with hogweeds they're very short flowers which means that things with short tongues can get at the nectar and the pollen isn't it that's right yeah so flies some of the short-term bees will visit it ignumin wasps you find on them and the same would apply to wild parsnip, which is quite common on the down, is just starting to flower now. And that looks like the hogweed and that, but it's yellow. And you mentioned ichneumon wasps, what do, what do they do? They're parasitic wasps, so um, they lay their eggs on, well usually caterpillars, things mm. like that. While they're still alive and sort of eat them from the inside, it's not very pleasant. And at the back there, there's some greater knapweed, which is good for pollinators, butterflies like the greater knapweed, like the meadow browns we've got at the moment, and 
dark green fritillaries, which there was one on here, it's just flown off though. So there's a bumblebee on here. And that's the thing, right about short tongue bees, bumblebees get medium to long tongues, don't yes. they? So this one is, I think it's a male garden bumblebee. Yeah. Bombus hortorum. And that is a longer tongue species. And there's also a burnet moth on the gnat breed over here. It's really, when you're looking at the insects as a group and butterflies and moths together, butterflies aren't really different to, they're just part of that group Lepidoptera, aren't they? That's right, yeah. You're not a separate branch. It's all in the antennae. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you've got a clubbed antennae, you're a butterfly. And if you've got a sort of pointy antennae, you're a, a female moth. Yeah. And if you're a male moth, you've got feathered antennae. And actually, there's a, there's a herb down here as well, isn't it? What's that? Marjoram. Yeah. Yeah, so that's not quite flowering yet, but in a few weeks it will be. And yeah, that'll be heaving with pollinators. Bees, butterflies, small tortoiseshell for some reason, you always find lots of them on there. Yeah. Is that a skipper on that napweed there? Yeah, that looks like well, it's either small skipper or Essex skipper. But skippers are, they're small brown butterflies, aren't they? But you could easily mistake that for a moth. Oh, yeah, it's the way it sits and the way its wings are held, I suppose. Now, I think I can see a, there's an orchid back there, isn't there? Yep. So that's a pyramidal orchid. And it's, I mean, it's not square like a pyramid, but it's got that classic cone shape yeah. and a beautiful pink colour. And then we've got some drop wort here, which is in the same family as meadow sweet so if you if right. you know meadow sweet um it's in like a miniature version of that it's a beautiful creamy white isn't it it is it, actually i think it's most beautiful when the flowers are just about to open because it's got that sort of pinkish reddish tinge yeah those little buds yeah they've got their pinkish tinge haven't they so we've got another umbrella here we talked about carrot parsley what's that one that's wild carrot which is just starting to flower now and again, is, is great for flies and wasps and some of the solitary bees actually as well. Yeah. But quite often you do see this, when they open up, it's quite a dense head and they've got a little black dot. Oh, that's them. right, yeah. And this is a nice plant for pollinators. In fact, really great plant for pollinators. Bird's foot trefoil. Common, but it's the, well, it's the food plant for the common blue butterfly, yeah. but also quite a lot of those day-flying moths, yeah. like um, the burnet moths and I think the um, burnet companion. Yeah. Probably more. And it's also a great plant for bees. Bumblebees in particular love it. I think it's partly due to the pollen being just perfect in terms of uh, what the bees need nutritionally. Yeah. And actually the, um, you know, the mason bees as a group? Yeah. Uh, there's, we've got the red mason, uh, well, red tail mason bee, yeah. Osmia bicolor, and that loves all of these. Well, so it's, it loves the horseshoe vetch, which has sort of gone over a bit now. Yeah. And then it will go on the bird's foot trefoil. Now the the Osmia bicolor, that red uh, red tail mason bee, it looks like a mini red tail bumblebee, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. But it's quite amazing what it does, isn't it? It nests in snail shells. Vacant ones, old, old ones. ones. Yeah. Not only that, it then. Once it's sort of laid its eggs in there, it will 
go and collect dry bits of grass. Yeah. And you sometimes see them flying along, yeah. carrying the grass, and they cover that, cover the snail shell with that to protect it from predators and parasites. Yeah, they thatch it, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a ringlet butterfly floating by. Now they're quite dark, aren't they? They are. So meadow browns and ringlets could be confused quite easily because some of the meadow browns are quite dark. I think it's the males. But the ringlets, if they're at rest, it's easy. They've, the underside of the wings has got these lovely rings on it. Yeah. But if in flight, then if you look for a white margin around the black, that's yeah. a clear distinctive feat. But they're almost deep velvety brown, aren't they? Rough hawk bit, that's another classic uh, pollinator plant. Well, this seems to look a skinny dandelion. Yes, so yeah, if you don't know, it's a composite like a dandelion. Yeah. The leaves are quite different though, it's smaller. You often find, I can't see any in this one, you often find little pollen beetles in there. Yeah. It's small skippers like sitting on the top. Mm. And you get bumblebees visiting it as well, uh, the red-tailed bumblebee in particular, I would say. I think diversity is the key to most things, isn't it? The more diverse plants you've got, you've got different food sources. It's clearly different butterflies eat different plants. You know, you talked about various things eating the, yeah. the caterpillars, yes, eating the various things. There'll be different butterflies on the grasses, like your, your meadow browns and your skippers are on grasses, aren't they? Yeah, and there are, there are some species of bee which will only collect the pollen from one species of plant. And that's the thing as well, yes, because if you think about bumblebees and honeybees, they need diversity right through the season, don't they? Yeah. So right from when they first come out, March, April time, right until the nest end, when we're talking about back end of September, yeah. they need succession of different plant species all through the year. There's a solitary bee which only goes on harebell. Yeah. Um, and there's another one which only goes on red barts here. Let me get up here. It's a marbled white. I don't think we had one of those. No, yeah, it's a lovely one. It's a bit caught in the wind at the moment. But it's a beautiful black and white, like, checkerboard, isn't it? Yeah. They're quite a large one. And they like longer grass, don't they? Yes. There's a couple here, look. There's another one. That's what we're talking about diversity. I mean, if people can do this a little bit in their garden, can't they? Because you get no mo may. Yeah. Um, and I extend it to most of the year. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with the sort of general principle there, but I think that an occasional cut is not a bad thing. So, I mean, having long grass in your garden, even if it's, I mean, the bug life often say maybe a square metre is enough for some things, isn't yeah. it? Well, I, I like the idea of having, if you've got enough room, of course, yeah. but if, you, if you've got, say, a hedge or something, then have a strip next to the hedge, which is more or less left alone, yeah. maybe cut once or in the winter or something. But then progressively go more cuts as you come to the bit where you're using it, you know, your lawn that you're wanting yeah. to walk on all the time. So you maybe have a strip which is only mown, say, twice a year. Uh, and then you have another bit which is mown more regularly inside of that. And then you'll get a whole range of different things. So like white clover, for example, will keep flowering where you keep cutting it. Yeah. But if you want things like field scabious, you don't want to cut it at all, really, until the winter. Yeah. And in those, even those strips, you can get more grasshoppers in, a, in your garden. Actually, a couple of years ago, I was really pleased. There's a, there's a go moth called the ghost moth. Have you seen that one? I haven't. Yeah, and it's only, you only get it on long grass. 
and I walked out and I'd, so I've got quite a bit of long grass but at dusk it does this lecking flight it's like birds sometimes gather right. together to, to try and track mates and it does this dancing flight up above the grass stems and I had one in my garden I don't know if you can call it a lek with one. It's like a disco with one bloke in it, really, isn't it? But, yeah, it was really... There, not there nice are some other moths that do that. With really tight, little micro moths with really long antennae. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen a few around recently. and They're, they're quite small, half a centimetre long. Quite metallic colours, but they're, the antennae are many times the length of the body. Yeah. And quite white, long white antennae dancing along up the edges. Down, of the, yeah. Down. So there's a bit of shorter turf here now, isn't there? Yeah. We've got the diversity of structure. And there's massive different plants. I'm, again, there's, what's that little pale orchid? That one. That's another fragrant orchid, I think. And there's a bumblebee on this greater knapweed. Uh, so this is a male early bumblebee, yeah. Bombus praetorum. Because there's about 30-odd species, is it? Or 28 species? We've recorded something like, I think it's 13 or 14, something like that. But breeding regular, sort of, probably 10 or so. Yeah, and that's quite impressive, isn't it? Yeah, and some of those are quite rare. So, well, we've got a good population of Bombus humulus, the brown-banded Carder bee. Yeah. We've got Bombus ruderatus, which is the large garden bumblebee. There's the cuckoo bee that goes on Bombus lapidarius, the red-tailed bumblebee. It's the field cuckoo bee, Bombus rupestris. That's a very big dark wings yeah. and red tail. I mean, the thing about cuckoos is they're, they're sort of less hairy than the sort of true bumblebees. They don't need to be because they're not collecting pollen. They're, they're cuckoos in the nest, just like a cuckoo bird lays its eggs in the nests of other birds. The cuckoo bumblebee lays its eggs in the nests of other bumblebees. So it relies, it doesn't produce its own work. It's only males and females. Yeah. yeah. And it relies on the workers of the host to do all the gathering. So they tend to be quite tough. They're, they've got a, they're, they're sort of fed, sort of armoured, if you like. They've got to fight into the nest. Exactly, yeah, yeah. There's another plant here which is quite worth mentioning, I think, which is yellow rattle. Yeah. Uh, it's nearly finished flowering now, just one or two open at the top of the plant. It's a, it's a good plant for long-tongued bumblebees again, but it's also quite good for the, the grassland anyway yeah. because it's semi-parasitic. So it takes some of the sort of vigour out of the grasses, which leaves more room for the herbs and yeah. the flowers. So this is an anthill here, isn't it? I mean, there's several anthills here, but when you look at the top of it, yeah, it looks quite different, doesn't it, in structure? Yeah, so you often find this, that the, the anthill has got different plants growing on the top of it than the surrounding area. Uh, and this one's got a, a lot of bird's foot trefoil on the top you get other ones with a lot of wild thyme, mm. like, a, like a carpet of purple thyme flowers. This is an active nest because you can see the soil through the top here, which is the ants continually working the soil. Yeah, and they bring all bits of parts of the soil up to the top. Yeah. And it's about, it's nearly a foot higher than the ground around it, isn't yeah. it? So it's, it's producing, you know, a different microclimate. Yeah. And that's important for the butterflies. I mean, well, there's one butterfly we get here, the Adonis Blue, which um, relies on ants, really, for um, survival. I mean, it, the caterpillar secretes this sugary solution, which attracts the ants. And uh, for the rest of its life, it's, it's got ant bodyguards, basically. Yeah, yeah. 
until it hatches out the next spring. Yeah. Yeah. Quite amazing. The blue butterflies. There's quite a few blue butterflies out that sort of association, isn't there? Yeah. So we talked about improved grassland. I mean, one thing that used to be very common on farmland was uh, what they call lowland meadow and uh, hay meadows as well, yeah. which are far more rich in plant species, aren't they? And certainly with lowland meadows, as I say, used to be part of every farmland because they used to cut hay off it and that used to be the fodder crop for the winter. Then they switched to silage, which doesn't need, you know, you can make several cuts off it a year. You can get more fodder for your animals, uh, but it's nowhere near as good for the wildlife. Yeah, yeah. so it's a traditional practice which has died out, basically. Yeah. And I think the lowland meadows in England have reduced since the 1970s, I think it is, by 97%. Mm. And a lot of places you find all the species rich grassland bits are just squeezed to the edges, odd little pockets here and there. Now looking at Martin down here, this is massive, isn't it? Yeah. We talked about that, but not everywhere has got stuff like this anymore. I mean, the probably nearest, closest bit is Salisbury Plain, which is huge, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You know, so this is very scarce stuff. And we've got um, a project we're trying to do with the parishes uh, called the Parish Pollinator Pledge. Uh, well, they're trying to work to get species back into the grasslands. And it might be local road verges, it might be the uh, edge of their recreation grounds, or they might own a little paddock, and they want to get the flowers and plants and insects back in there. So we're doing quite a lot of work with the parishes. It's really going to pay dividends, because lots of people doing a little bit really adds up, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, nature reserves are great, yeah. places like this, but they're a tiny proportion of the land area of the country. Hmm. Uh, so if you really want to do anything about nature recovery, it's got to be beyond nature reserve. And that's it. And I think we've been very successful mostly in managing places like this, because clearly there's a lot of species here. Conditions will be changing for species and they'll need to move geographically yeah. in order to survive. So they need to colonise new sites. Hmm. And if they, unless they've got bits of habitat that they can either sort of move through as corridors yeah. or as or jump across on stepping stones if there's too large a gap between two bits of suitable habitat yeah. then they're not going to make it and we've got three farm clusters around here can you tell us what farm clusters are so farm clusters are groups of farmers who have got together usually around a nature reserve so there's a martin down farm cluster for yeah. example and they set themselves sort of targets if you like usually around certain species yeah uh, and then undertake activities on their farms to try and encourage those species yeah so it's allowing species that are on the nature reserve to sort of overflow into the surrounding countryside because mm. i know one of the species here is turtle dove they're doing a lot of work and put little ponds in and seed rich strips and stuff like that which gets those turtle doves back out into the landscape again it's gray partridge yeah. which is declining, you know, it's been replaced by red leg partridge, great partridge, very scarce in Hampshire now. But there's also bumblebees, I think, that comes yes. around as well. So a lot of the farmers have put in strips, what sort of field margins, where they've sown mixes specifically for pollinators. Mm. Um, so lots of things like the black knapweed, greater knapweed, that sort of thing, marjoram. And, you know, providing a real resource for bumblebees. And that's what nature recovery is all about, you know, because we've got the local nature recovery strategies going to be coming out very soon for each, every county in England's going to have them. And it's getting, it's making sure that the special sites are better managed. Uh, they might increase their size a little bit, buffer them a little bit, 
join them up with other special sites, but also getting the nature back into that wider countryside, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So doing things like restoring flower-rich grass and verges, getting those pollinators back out in. And I think it's something a lot of people can get involved in, you know, because we're going to be looking at pe getting people involved doing surveys um, and even just doing a little bit in your own garden or next to your, you know, road verge next to your house. You know, you can do quite a lot if all together. People do it, it'll make a difference. Absolutely. It's the only way we can do it is in partnership. I think that's key to it, isn't it? And that's where the farm classes come in. They work in partnership with us. Yeah. Um, but we work in partnership with them more often, actually. And it's them delivering yeah. the benefits, isn't it? Yes. Well, it's been a lovely day meeting out here. I mean, it's a, you know, it's nice to get out of the office and it's especially nice to get out when it's a lovely day like this uh, with birds singing and loads, loads on the wing, loads of flowers around. So thank you very much for having us here, Mike. You're welcome. Thanks for coming. Well, Andy, I love it up here. If it was a bit closer to home, I'd be here every day. Yeah, I think sometimes it's a bit of a benefit of being a little bit further away. You've got a bit, a bit more of an effort to get here. I know. I would be up here chasing butterflies all the time. So what have you seen today then, butterflies? We have seen ringlets and skippers and dark green fritillaries, marbled whites and lots and lots and lots of different bees. So what's your favourite pollinator? I've got a soft spot for the bees and wasps and I do like bumblebees. Having a favourite, blimey. Um, we did mention, it's, it's, it's quite a scarce thing, we did mention the large scabious mining bee. And that's quite a, it's bigger than a honeybee and it's got bright red on its abdomen as well but you don't often see them but that's quite a nice one well i like butterflies and my favorite are painted ladies we haven't seen any of them today not but today no we did see the fritillaries which are beautiful so i've got a fun fact Andy. oh i'm always looking forward to these you know that and it is fun do you know the butterflies do not actually sleep no i didn't know that so what they do is called quiescent so this means that they rest, but it's not quite the same as how animals or people sleep. So when the weather's cool or cloudy, so a bit like today, yeah. butterflies will rest with their eyes open. So they become quiescent when it is night and cool and they will hide in the bushes or the flowers and they hang upside down from the twigs because it uses less energy. So they hang upside down because they have tarsi, which are like claws that help them to grip onto the leaves and twigs and it requires a lot less energy so they can rest. Yeah, and some birds, I mean, it's basically their toes, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's like some birds, when they're sitting asleep, there's almost like a locking mechanism. So when they hang, when they're sitting there asleep... They don't fall off. They don't fall off because the toes lock around. So I hope you've all enjoyed this episode of Looking After Nature. We'd love to hear from you with any comments or thoughts, or if there's anything you'd like us to discuss in a future episode, you can let us know by checking out our social media pages. And we'd really appreciate it if you rate and review our podcast on iTunes as it helps other people find us. For now, thanks again for listening. I'm Andy Davidson. And I'm Carly Howard. See you next time. <laughs>